Hello and welcome to the Groove Sipper podcast. I'm Alice. And I'm Lucy. And together we want to invite guests to come and share their grief with us. Our aim is to cover a whole range of grief from a whole range of people. We're sorry for your loss, but we are glad that you have found us. Thank you for listening to the Groove Sofa podcast. In today's episode, Emma joins us as we remember her wonderful husband, Simon. Emma tells us about how her life has changed for her and her two daughters since his death in 2016. She discusses how her identity has changed and evolved over time, and how she has found comfort in using her experiences to start her own business, Rainbow Hunting. So, um, hi there. Uh, I'm Emma. I'm uh, always tend to veer towards introducing myself as to my career uh, because my career is actually quite relevant to all of this. Uh, so I, I'm now a non-practicing solicitor, but my specialism actually was end of life. It was wills, probate, powers of attorney, trusts and tax and all that sort of thing. I'm still quite involved with them all, um, but um, I'm a really big advocate as a consequence of both my career and the fact that really sadly my husband died of cancer in 2016, having been a fighting fit Royal Marine, uh, that people need to get all their paperwork in place and people shouldn't bury their hand and head in the sand. Death's the only inve- inevitable thing happening to all of us. And actually one of the things I often say to people is that my mum says that death and taxes are the only two certainties in life. But I know that as a solicitor, one of the things that we used to get asked endlessly was how to avoid tax. So really, death is the only certainty in life, yet we bury our head in the sand about it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's so appropriate, it being us recording on Dying Matters Week as well. And it's uh, it's kind of surreal how much we bury our heads in the sand about about death and about talking openly about the inevitable. So you mentioned your husband. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and, and the cancer that he had? Yeah, absolutely. So and it, just picking up on what you just said there, I think it really does seem uh, amazing that we're talking in Dying Matters Week because they actually say and they talk about in a good place at the moment and their campaign this year and I really do believe in that it is so important Mm. to try and be in the best place possible I don't know whether it's necessarily always good so my husband was diagnosed with inoperable esophageal cancer in December 2013 and as with all of these things we went into total free-for-all and you just I think you just suddenly the world just seems to be moving and fast forward around you really doesn't it yeah and he had aggressive chemotherapy and then consolidation radiotherapy um, and then we had a bit of a nice phase where we could do some fun stuff I always call it kind of like our bucket list phase with the kids mm. and because it was esophageal cancer which I know that you know an awful lot about but um we got told that we would know before anyone else when it started to go bad and we did because he would struggle to swallow so gosh it's really difficult so you've got two children as well did you say yeah so the girls are um they're fabulous um they were three and five when my husband was diagnosed in December 2013 gosh Um, so young it is so young and it's far too young for anything like this to really have happened, especially when he had a job where we just presumed that he would always be fit. Mm, um, absolutely. So it was a real shock because actually in the military, like 
something awful happening to the guys and and ladies who serve in the forces is always a possibility but you never anticipate it to happen at home you know I mean when he was first diagnosed in December 2013 he was so sick that they actually told us that they that they thought the best that the chemotherapy would actually do is stop the cancer and then everyone was absolutely stunned because it actually shrank it back a bit which actually to the wider world everyone thought he was getting better which was fabulous but it's also really hard yeah um, so it's sort of glimmers of hope that we talk about when it comes to cancer yeah yeah um and so yeah he he actually then far out surpassed all our wildest dreams although I would have massively liked him to have kept going for longer but he lived for two and a half years until he died in 2016 um, and he was he was only 38 when he died um and the kids by the time he died were six and eight years old um and they're now 11 and 13 that's so young that um, you lost your husband at that age. And I just, you know, my heart really does go out to you. Mm. How how have you coped? You know, how have you managed, um, you know, raising your two girls by yourself? It must have been, you know, really, really tough. Yeah, it, it, at times it has been. I, I, I'm a big believer in sometimes core of who you are I'm, I'm lucky in some respects that I have a really strong be strong driver in me so it's like that old British step up a lip you just keep going and um, I remember times in the early days of being on my own with the girls when I would drive because they we used to live over half an hour away from school and I would drive to go and get the kids and I knew that I just needed to let it out and I would just be in floods of tears um, driving from one place to the other um, and then I would get out of the car like nothing had happened just like hi oh, hi yeah. how was your uh, day guys like yeah. hi happy mum here it's fine everything's fine I think that's so difficult as well because there's such a sense of like trying to keep it together and trying to keep it normal as, as normal as you can for the girls knowing that they're carrying their own grief too Absolutely. And I was a big believer at the time that I was coping brilliantly mm. and that I I was streets ahead of everyone because I had known he was going to die in 2013. So I'd been living with that anticipation of him going. Um, and when he did die in 2016, he was so poorly by that stage that they did actually turn around to me in the hospice and say we have no idea why he's still going because Mm. he's that sick and so I thought that I was like streets ahead of everybody else in the grief journey and actually I joked with someone the other day about like oh you know like wasn't I doing brilliantly and didn't I do so well and all the rest of it and uh, they said you were baggage and I was like oh I thought I was doing so well obviously to the outside world they could see through it all yeah they were they were humoring me in what I needed which is I needed to believe that I could cope with it almost just like on autopilot you know you must have just gone into this mode where you know everything was just sort of yeah done done automatically sort of without thinking if that makes sense absolutely and and I did initially in those early days absolutely go into what I called survival mode Mm. Um, and in some respects I had a bit of training for being a solo parent because 
my husband being in the forces he was away an awful awful lot mm. and I used to often joke about single parent mode and how I would just go into single parent mode um, and I used to often say that but little did I know that that was going to be vital and was going to be part of my coping strategy and I think that you know people talk about stages of grief and I don't I don't generally agree with stages of grief as a philosophy but I do believe that there are a number of different emotions we may feel at various different times and and one of those for me definitely was denial and it was it was what kept me going when I was in survival mode. You know, I could almost believe he was away on operations. <laughs> like, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you know, did you feel like he was just on a really long deployment? You know, when was the moment that the penny dropped that you were like, oh, wait, no, he's he's actually gone? Well, it was kind of like living in a parallel universe from day one because um, the realism of him going was from the first minute um it, it really was from absolutely straight away I had this um I watched him die and uh, so there was no avoiding the fact that he wasn't there anymore uh, yet I could kind of feel like I knew how I was on my own with the kids because mm. I lived like that so much. So it felt so familiar in a very weird way, yet not familiar. Yeah, sure. I can only imagine. Gosh, that must be really difficult. So did you have like a really dark moment in, in your grief then that kind of when everything kind of hit you and you went, oh, that kind of survival mode is wearing thin now. I need to face up to this, you know, yeah yeah no definitely I definitely did and I often say that it was a couple of years after he died but actually the way that you phrase the question the like the point where it really hit me that he had gone was actually the evening he died because I can totally remember kind of collapsing to the floor and turning around to my mum and just saying I knew that I was going to be heartbroken, but I didn't realise that heartbroken was physical as well as emotional. Like I literally feel broken physically as well as emotionally. Yeah. Um, and then in that first year, you kind of, everyone rallied around us and everyone was around us. But the darkest point, I think, from a overall perspective was definitely a couple of years after he died because everyone else's world had got back to normal. So I was still living in the cottage that we bought as a family. Um, and we bought it to be like our stability in the military crazy world with him weekly commuting and the kids and I, kids finally at a school that they like. So many nice memories. But as soon as he died, I made up my mind that I needed to move because the commute to school was just exhausting and I couldn't do it on my own and contemplate going back to work. I hadn't actually taken the plunge to move house yet. It, it felt awful because I felt like I was living a life I didn't want to live anymore. I was in this gorgeous cottage um, with amazing memories and with everyone telling us how lovely it was. And Simon was buried in the same village and my heart kind of wanted to be there, but it didn't want to be there. It wanted to start something new and it wanted to find a new way of being. And then we had two dogs and our dogs were our babies before we had children. Oh. We had this gorgeous chocolate Labrador that kind oh. of 
loved everyone and um, ate everything. And we joked that he was totally my husband's dog. And then we had this crazy black cock spaniel, which was totally mine. And they were roughly the same age. The Labrador was a little bit older. And the Labrador actually mourned my husband like he was 12 years old and he started to go downhill yeah. and 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 it was awful to see the dog actually mourning my husband mm. as, as much as the girls and I and I thought as a consequence that I was going to have to get him put down yeah which was just the most awful decision in the world and then the dog that was more mine who I thought would live until he was 16 suddenly ironically given that I'm Emma but in storm Emma had heart failure and I initially threw money at trying to keep him alive but he was so sick it was just heartbreaking but what was the most heartbreaking thing of all was that the Labrador gave up on him so wouldn't even be in the same room as our Mm. little cocker and um and I spent that last night with him looking after him like I'd looked after my husband I'll I'll never forget slumping down next to the Arga and phoning my sister and saying I know what I need to do tomorrow because I've seen this before this uh, this this is like Simon and a dog this is just awful I can't let this dog keep going and I phoned up the vets the next day and I said are those drugs actually supposed to be working by now? And they said, yes. And I said, he's getting worse. He's not getting better. This is just awful. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And uh, they said, well, you can keep him alive for another day, but we know the decision you're probably going to have to make in another day's time, or we can, we can put him down today. And I said, um, I said, I can't let him keep going. This is awful. This is absolutely terrible. And uh, the guy said, <laughs> the vet, he said, well, you can't come to me because the snow's so bad unless you've got a four before. He said, I'll come to you. And I went, oh, my God, but I've got children. <laughs> like, oh, like dog down in front of the kids. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and he said, well, how long do you need? And I was like, I'll go to a neighbour and get the kids to go around for a play date with the neighbour. I said, give me an hour. And I, I was still in my pyjamas, I think, when the vet came round. Oh, we got him put down in front of the Arga at home. And that was absolutely gorgeous. And it, it was, it, it was again, it was like trying to give the best death possible, but this yeah. time the dog. Um, and then when he'd gone, I was then left with a Labrador who I just adored, but whose back legs were giving out. And then he started pooing in the house. And then I had to go and make another decision again for the Labrador. And then suddenly we had no dogs. And it was just, I think that was probably my lowest point. I'd gone back to work as a lawyer, but I was had this itch that that wasn't where I wanted to be, but I felt like I needed the money and I was stuck in the cottage. And the kids were struggling with not having their dad around because they were so many years behind in the grief journey. And being yeah. children, I think the grief journey is very different for them. Mm. And that was, yeah, I think that was definitely my darkest point. <laughs> It's really interesting, actually. We, when we ask this question, it seems to be a really common theme that people say around two years. The shock is starting to wear off and yes. the reality starts to kick in, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does seem to be really common that the two year mark or, you know, 18 months to two years mm. is when people say that that the darkest time was. Yeah, mm-hmm. that the, the help fades away, you know everyone else's lives move on as you say and Mm. that's the sort of real low point 
And I think the other thing that really frustrated me at the time was people couldn't say the right thing to me about time because some people would go, oh my gosh. And I would feel like it was ages and that I hadn't made the changes I needed and done the things I needed to do. And I was still utterly in survival mode trying to get by. And then other times I'd have people say to me two years, gosh, that's nothing. Like you've got so much further to go. And then there was part of me just going, oh my God, like I feel awful. How could I keep going like this for years? This is yeah. It does feel a bit like a time capsule, I think, because, you know, I feel like, I mean, I'm very fresh, you know, I'm not even Mm. a year, I'm going to be a year in a month (laughs) and I know that that's really really raw Mm. and I kind of feel like I'm in a little bit of a survival mode at the moment and the more we speak in fact just before you came on I said to Alice I can't help but feeling like I'm doing this year and I've just like cracked on with things because I knew it was coming and we knew that dad was sick and da 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 and Mm. then it's gonna hit me in like six months time and I'm gonna be like oh this is the thing that everybody talks about but like you had so much going on as well you know having to deal with the loss of two pets and having Mm. to make that decision and them being so unwell and when you've nursed somebody Mm. to the end of their life like you did with your husband Mm. you can't forget those days you know and then they become I don't know you know they they do become you know similar in in other situations you know listening to you talk about your dogs my heart was shattering because I'm like oh my god my dog is my my therapy pet and I know for Alice it's the same you know that is such a huge part of your family and such a huge part of your life to be dealing with the grief from them as well as everything else you had so much going on and it was really interesting as well Lucy because it really triggered all of us you know it was almost like in grieving for the pets it brought Simon's grief absolutely back to the forefront Mm. so suddenly all of that grief came out again but just in a slightly different form um and um and it was really hard because I knew that I I I hate living without a dog but um um and I knew that my especially one of my kids gets so much comfort like if she's upset going to just sit with the dog doesn't need any words she just needs the kind of unconditional yeah. yeah and inability to talk back or say pleasantries that really don't hit the mark or anything it's just that being with someone um and um and I knew that not having a dog was a huge gap for her but I couldn't replace them straight away I couldn't replace them partly because I knew that I was working and the hours and just so complicated um but also I in my heart I couldn't replace the love gap that they've left in our life um so I didn't we didn't get our new pet until the first lockdown and she was a total panic purchase everyone else was <laughs> out buying loo roll and uh I went and panic <laughs> purchased a dog <laughs> so. that's so funny and actually um you know without trying to hijack your conversation I you know we had a Labrador um and he got put down probably three years after my mum died Mm. and I I remember my dad like being an absolute 
bits about mm. it you know it, it really 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 broke him down and I think unless you have a dog you don't really understand like how especially if yeah if you've already been bereaved and you have a dog and then lose a dog like the pain of that is absolutely yeah. monumental yeah it really is it really is and I don't know I don't know whether actually your body almost needs that release again and and suddenly it's like opening the floodgates it just all comes out like so much especially like three years that's three years of trying to keep it all in Mm, absolutely and then suddenly it comes flowing out um I still find funerals hard though Mm. um I find it very hard not to have my own triggers at other people's funerals um I totally agree Mm. yeah I find I'm the same and the funeral of my um my partner's cousin which was in February and it was another heartbreaking story you know 40 years old dying of cancer and everything about it just I saw the hearse and I was like gone as soon as soon as I saw the hearse I was like okay this is so much and it's 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 just crazy even when I see a hearse on the street you know my heart sinks a little bit because I think about the family that are behind that car and yeah I think it just you just carry it with you don't you Mm. it's really interesting to hear what triggers you though Lucy because um because actually often what triggers me is either seeing the bereaved kids trying mm. to keep uh, everything in control or seeing the bereaved spouse because I can so, everybody is so unique, but I can so empathise with where they might be mm, and absolutely. what they might be feeling. Yeah. You've spoken a little bit about your girls and when we asked you what had been the biggest thing to help you get through your grief, Mm. um, that was your main answer. So it'd be lovely if you could speak a little bit about them and how, you know, how they've championed you through this time and how you've kind of worked together. Yeah, they're just my rocks. They really are. I just feel so blessed to have them in my world. I used to say they were the best and the worst thing of it. The worst purely because like seeing their grief is just heartbreaking they are too young to have lost a dad and they are certainly too young to have lost a dad who was actually a really fantastic father as well um and 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 I've often thought that like losing my spouse is one thing but you know I had a lot more years with him and I am old enough to be able to remember most of what we did together um but the kids were so little I mean like one of them being three he was already really sick by the time he was diagnosed and um that that use it losing a parent at that kind of age is really heartbreaking and he was just so fun and he had so much knowledge to pass on he was so commonsensical like I can be a bit dizzy sometimes and and I try very hard to be sensible um but um but But then you panic by dogs so (laughs) yes yes 
yes i panic bought it well my midlife crisis purchase after simon <laughs> died was a vw van as well so yeah i'm just yeah not hugely responsible really um but i really feel and i have felt that i owe it to my kids to sort myself out uh, you know no matter how heartbroken i am i need to be there for the kids and, and I'm not always you know everybody's got their Achilles heel and none of us are perfect and just like every other mum I lose my patience with them and get fed up with doing all the laundry and the cooking and the tidying and all the rest of it um but I really do feel like I need to sort myself out so that I can be there for them and actually ironically lockdown's played a really big part in that yeah I can imagine and how do you manage to kind of I'm thinking about the other people listening to this who maybe have children in their lives I know for me one of the things that I'm really keen to do is to keep my dad's memory alive to Mm. my nieces and nephews who are you know similar age to your girls and probably won't have loads of really formulated memories of dad Mm. so how do you do you know, how do you bring him into your world still and how do you you know do things with them to remember him yeah we do talk about him a lot um an awful lot like even just the smallest of things uh, he was he had some great things that he used to say example is sports day and then and you know he was a royal marine so he was competitive and you know fighting fit and all the rest of it but his big thing is he'd say to the kids is have fun so often I used to worry uh, that Simon was the fun one in the family and actually I've realized that a little part of him is still in me you know and so when they have a big event and they're stressing about it and they're worrying and things like that I often just say to them can you remember what daddy would have said and the kids all kind of sometimes remember and sometimes not remember. And then we'll go, have fun. And it's really nice to have that as like, a, you know, you get out of the car and you've got to go and do it. And yeah, going to have fun, you know, forget yeah. the bear, showing up for other people. This is just about enjoying the journey. Oh, that makes my heart warm. <laughs> oh, just... It makes me feel really sad. It's like it's such a bittersweet feeling hearing you talk about your husband like that. And I feel so bittersweet about the whole thing because uh, I feel like in him dying, a little bit of him has stayed with me and 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 I actually feel a better person for that. Mm. I feel a better person for having known him. I feel a better person for have absorbed some of his philosophies and his concepts. And if I can then somehow keep those alive for the children, then... I feel that's part of my role now. And I think it's true. I think, you know, quite often we talk. In fact, I had a really lovely message the other day where I was texting my friend and I said, you know, I'm just kind of angry at the world. Like, I'm kind of angry that, you know, people don't get to meet my dad. Like, you know, I'm angry that Mm -hmm. that incredible person is gone and there's some really crappy people in the world and they're still here. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, look, if it's any constellation, he's not gone in lots of ways because so much of him comes through in you and so if his legacy is you doing wonderful things and being a wonderful friend and making lots and lots of people smile and happy then 
don't think of him as gone just think of it as that you know that energy is passed on to something else and passed on to you and that you're doing a great job of making sure that people knew exactly you know what his strength did he created a daughter like you and I was like wow that's really nice and it's a lovely way to think about it because I think so often it does feel like every part of that person is gone suddenly and it's hard to sometimes remember how much of it carries on through you know the people that they spent time with and those people that they loved so much absolutely I couldn't agree with you more on that I am I often find it funny um but one part of my girls that they've both got uh, you can (laughs) you can laugh at this I don't mind but they've both got my husband's feet um, (laughs) I really I was like is she gonna say no is she (laughs) what's she gonna say be really insecure about but you (laughs) see it's really funny because I've always wanted lovely long toenails it's and not the toenails toes you know really (laughs) elegant toes that you can then paint the nails and they all look beautiful and all look lovely and I've got these like horrible short stubby toes and it's just (laughs) it's part of me and I've never Mm. liked but both my girls have got these really elegant feet with these lovely long toes and every time I see them and sometimes they even kind of bend them and twist them in exactly the same way that he used to that's so funny so bizarre because it's it's just like a daily reminder that he is still with me albeit in the children so when we sent over some questions to you you mentioned that you wanted to talk about secondary losses and searching for your identity or losing your identity when you lost your husband are you happy to talk about that yeah so I think this is what was mentioning about lockdown but I think often you know people think about the loss of a person but they don't think about all the extra losses that go with it and for me like we'd very much carved our life out that my career was going to play second fiddle to his um, and being him in the military was a huge part of our lives I mean at one point we had six houses in six years as we moved around and um, I totally hadn't anticipated those extra losses so I wasn't just grieving for the fact that I'd lost him and then of course I made the decision to pause law and that had been a constant in my life since like literally when we were boyfriend and girlfriend and so suddenly I found myself in lockdown and I'd given up law I decided to do a counselling course but I was a bit nervous about where that might take me And I totally hadn't realised that I'd lost that future life together, that concept of a forever home that we totally bought into. Like our cottage was really just supposed to be a stepping stone to um, a place where the kids could have ponies and a bit more space and all the rest of it. But I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't do it physically because I couldn't maintain a big property or look after ponies, but I couldn't do it financially without him either. And then losing the kind of intimate connection to the military. I was still friends with a lot of people, but it's, and they try, but it's just, it's not, 
it's not the same. It's not the same as having a spouse and the parties and the worries when they go on deployment. And I can empathise, but I don't quite live there anymore. And also I'd been a carer. And this is a really bizarre thing to actually mourn. But a part of me had loved caring for Simon. He hated it. He never wanted me to be his carer or his nurse or anything. He wanted me to be his wife. Mm. But I loved being able to look after him. And I was almost jealous when other people did it, because I wanted to be the one looking after him and caring for him. I just physically couldn't because I was trying to do a job and look after the kids and keep the house going and all the rest of it and I didn't understand how losing that and even when really sick he was still sharing the parenting with me so you know I still if I had a worry about the girls at school or if I wasn't sure whether to mention something to a teacher or the kids were doing something and I wasn't sure if it was the right thing there's suddenly nobody to talk to and I also hugely hugely miss someone to help out around the house and I, I loved my husband to pieces but he wasn't we had boy jobs and girl jobs but even then I did all the jobs when he was away and and, and he wasn't always the best at doing them but then he used to tell me that was my fault so I used to tell him he didn't do them right so it was <laughs> to do them than to do them wrong and um, classic argument I think <laughs> classic especially when he came back from deployment because he'd have big chunks of time off mm. and uh and I'd say you need to help out more and also being in the military actually he was much better than me at ironing um but and he'd say I'm trying but every time I do it I don't do it right and then you have a go at me oh <laughs> but actually you even miss those arguments you yeah. know and then you miss you, everything uh, yeah yeah and the hugs as well and just yeah yeah you kind of think you're gonna miss the person but there is just so much more when you start scratching the surface Absolutely. I think as well um you know where you've lost your husband you've really lost your future together you know you had a whole future plan mm. together and earlier on in the podcast you were talking about this cottage and how you'd bought it and it was going to be you know this this lovely home and how you felt you needed to leave it and you really grieve a lot of future plans mm. Mm. when it's when it's your life partner yeah um, yeah you grieve your whole future together because you've got future plans and then suddenly that gets ripped from beneath your feet definitely and I think Simon and I were slightly unusual because after our second child was born on pretty much our first date night I took a notepad and a pen to the pub and uh, and we sat down and we literally he knew that his career was going to be the more important one and he was doing pretty well in it so we literally mapped out on a timeline when the kids would need him at home like for example when they went from primary to secondary school and stuff like that oh, wow. the top he planned so if I was going to put my foot on the throttle and try and get promotion and be away a lot or be at work a lot and then that would be the time to do it and we really kind of mapped it out and then of course being a bloke he also went right so you're currently two days a week so I think you could maybe go up to three days a week here <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe you know you could make partner and I could leave the forces and I'll be a kept man <laughs> you've, you've got this whole like future planned out uh, yeah we didn't even start really 
that's so so sad and it's you know when you've gone into so much detail as well like you're clearly just you're both just fabulous parents I know you said earlier on that he was just the best dad and he really sounds like it you know he clearly cared so much about you and the girls and he wanted to spend you know all of the moments that he could with you and I think that is so so special and what a wonderful wonderful way to remember him as you know this really really loving man yeah yeah and he he was just brilliant he's left me with so many tidbits of knowledge one of the things he said to me is um he said it in person but he also left me a letter that he said it in and he said um he said this is gonna be really really hard like understatement of the year but anyway um and um he said so with big jobs you can't get sucked up by the concept of the fact that it's a huge job you've just got to break it down and I remember you were talking about the darkest days earlier and I can remember on one of my darkest days where literally one of my friends had even told me I should go to the GP and start seeing if I could find some happy pills because I was really and she's a doctor herself but I was really not happy at all And I felt like I was wading through treacle and I put the kids to bed and I've done their teeth and oh, their teeth used to be something that would almost break me. Like having to brush three people's teeth morning and evening, mine and the two kids was just, oh. And I went downstairs to the kitchen and it was chaos. There was the dishes everywhere and the school bags everywhere. And I knew I had to go to work the next day. And I just looked around this absolute mess and I looked at the at this old settle on the side in the kitchen that had all their school bags and I just looked at it and I thought right I'll do the school bags I'll just don't think about anything else so Simon said take it step by step I'll do the school bags and then once I'd done the school bags I looked around and I thought right I can't go to bed with the dirty dishes I'll just do the dirty dishes and by the time I'd finished about 45 minutes later I was like wow I've actually tidied the kitchen that feels like a massive achievement mm. I couldn't have done it if I'd gone I need to tidy the kitchen I just had to break it down and do whatever was like the kids needed their school bags that was the priority for that moment but I think sometimes the whole can seem absolutely overwhelming and sometimes you just got to do a tiny bit of it and be amazing advice (laughs) that's such such good advice on those really heavy grief days you know we all have them Mm. and we have these days where we wake up and we go oh my god I cannot even get out of bed today and Mm. I'm looking at the dog and I'm going do I really have to walk you and oh my god do I have to put the dishwasher on or do Mm. I have to fold up that or put away that laundry that's been hanging up for a week now because I've been avoiding it every time (laughs) I pass the spare room and it can just feel so overwhelming and I think sometimes in grief people don't realize until you experience it just how debilitating it can be Mm. and how big those small jobs can feel so I think that's such good advice from from Simon to like just take it step by step I know when we first started this we said take it minute by minute hour by hour however you know those small breakdowns of those days just so you can get through each day and I think that's just such top advice and then the counsellor in me well trainee counsellor in me has added to it and and 
my other thing that I say hand in hand with that is trust the process. Like you may have no idea when you're going to wake up and suddenly feel a little bit happier, but you will. And you've sometimes just got to trust the process. You've got to sit in the grief and be sad or, and sometimes I knew I needed to be sad. So on one of those days where I was driving into school and I was in floods of tears, I would actually put on a tune that I knew would make me cry because I needed to just be sad and to just feel that sadness. And I think it's something we just don't teach people these days. We don't teach them how to be sad and we don't teach them how to be angry. You know, anger's looked on so badly. Oh my God, they were angry. Well, actually, do you know what? If you channel that anger into a hundred meter sprint, you could be absolutely brilliant. Or if you channel that anger into painting, you could paint the most amazing, abstract, slightly chaotic, but beautiful picture. (laughs) But it's just you know there's things that we can do with our emotions but it's trusting the process and not trying to put it in a box because I think when we try and put it in a box that's when I found anyway if I tried to put my emotions in a box it's like trying to hold the lid on a boiling pot it just went everywhere and it would go boom at some point whereas if I could just lift it in a controlled environment when I knew I was safe to like listening to a tune on the way to pick the kids up to get it out of my system to then be able to jump out with a smiley face and say hello kids then that suited me but um everyone's different but that's that's something that really helped me gosh you've said so many really um interesting things during this episode like some really insightful things I think is going to be really useful for people to hear also I'm just curious what are your sad songs that you'd listen to (laughs) so there's one there's just one and I just Mm. I I can just hear the opening bars to it and it's enough to trigger me but um Simon (laughs) Simon gave me quite a lot of details for his uh burial and his funeral service because he wanted a military burial and he had some very strict ideas. He didn't just tell me who the pallbearers were, but he actually told me what roles some of them would be doing. And they were even roles that I didn't even know you had to get someone to do. And he worked out exactly who was going to do the eulogies and he asked the relevant people. And But he gave me no hymns and he gave me no prayers and he gave me no music except for one piece of music. And he just said that, as somehow he wanted to incorporate James Bay, Hold Back the River. And to many people, it will be the song that his coffin was carried out of the church after the service had finished by the Marines in their uniform with me in a black dress, but yellow shoes. And the girls in their pretty dresses, one on each side of me holding my hand as that music played as we went out. But actually for me, it was a tune that when he was really sick, he, we had this comfy chair in the bathroom and he would, he would be too tired to properly do bath time. And the kids were really little, you know, they were six and eight, but they were old enough that you could have them in the baths 
and you'd be slightly away from the bath and tell them roughly how to wash themselves. <laughs> so he had this game and he had two water pistols and he would put hot water <laughs> in one and he'd put cold water in the other. And it would be like a water pistol roulette and he'd get the kids and it was his way of getting them wet in the bathtub because they wouldn't know whether they were gonna have the hot water or the cold water. But he used to have that song playing a lot bath time when he was sat there like really sick but really happy because he was playing this like water pistol game with his kids in the bath he was a really incredible bloke like one of the raw marine mottos is cheerfulness in the face of adversity and I have honestly never met anyone before or since Simon who has the ability to really really am I allowed to swear or not (laughs) Of course. <laughs> to really, really be in the shit, but actually to be cheerful about it. And he could do it. And he could actually cheer up other people in the process, even though he was in a really bad state himself. Sometimes it's really sad that amazing people don't get to live their full lives because he would have been fabulous. Like he would have done really, really well. But I'm biased, so I'm gonna say that, am I? <laughs> I you know, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, following following your account on Instagram, sort of like listening to you today, I genuinely believe like he was one of the good guys and it is mm. just awful he was taking from you. And there's um one particular photo that you shared of him. He had the sort of like a maybe like a checky shirt on and he's just looking and like smiling into the camera. Yeah. And he just has this look about him that is really, really kind and yeah. really fun and really loving. And I, you know, yes, you may you may be biased, but I, I genuinely believe that he was an incredible guy and that, you know, that's come across so well in this episode. Like he, he does sound, whose motto is have fun. <laughs> that just sounds like him. <laughs> it's so amazing. And I think he knows that I needed to hear that and I needed to live with that. And so it's kind of become my motto too. But I I find it very hard sometimes to do, you know, I sometimes feel like the weight of the world is on me and I've got a lot to do. But, um, but to have his strength behind me, I, I, to, I'm always going to feel eternally grateful that he asked me to marry him. You know, it's possibly the nicest thing that's ever happened in my world. I, you know, and then to have our kids together and all the rest of it is just all part of that, really. It's been so nice to hear all about him and, and your wonderful family as well. Um, for people who would like to follow you or check out your new website, can you just tell people what your handle is and where they can find you? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram at, at Rainbow Hunting Moments. And uh, I love my Instagram. My Instagram actually started as my happy place when I was in my darkest days. And I tried to look for things that would cheer me up. And um, then I started photographing them. And then I actually realized that I was seeing nice things more and more without even looking for them. Mm. And so it seems lovely that Instagram's kind of been pivotal part of then my website, which is now called Rainbow Hunting. So it's www.rainbowhunting.co.uk. 
and my other social media can all be found kind of on that I'm on LinkedIn and all sorts of things I'm really hoping that by telling my story it will help other people because that is the meaning that I have found from this chaos is that if by telling my story and bringing in my legal, my mental health interests and my lived experience can help other people to be better prepared, then I'll feel like something okay has happened as a consequence of all this. Mm. And, and if I could send a message out to people, it would be, you are not alone. You may feel alone and you may feel so lonely that the loneliness is absolutely all consuming. But the reality is, is you are not alone. And if you have the strength to reach out to just one person and say, can we chat or even just comment on something and hope that they comment back. But there will be people out there who they won't know your experience because I'm a firm believer that we are all unique and our grief is all unique but they may have some empathy for what you're going through and they may be able to hold your hand on the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Grief Sofa podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review to help us reach new listeners. If you have enjoyed listening and would like to join us on the Grief Sofa, please get in touch on Instagram at the Grief Sofa or email us thegriefsofa at gmail.com.